Hello and welcome to this Men's Health Squad conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Judd is a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist, a researcher and an internationally known expert in the field of addiction. He joined us today to talk about the topics covered in his new book, The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. We covered a huge amount of ground here today, all circling the central theme of why dieting can feel so hard, why willpower alone often isn't enough if it does us any good at all, and how we can rewire our brains to begin mending our relationship with food, fixing the habits that aren't serving us, and actually get back to enjoying the foods we're eating whilst eating in a way that aligns with our goals. I am already looking forward to having Dr. Judd back on to drill down a little bit deeper into the topic of willpower. So consider this a very entertaining and very actionable part one that might just change the way you eat forever. Enjoy. Dr. Judd, thank you so much for joining me today, mate. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I wonder if you could give us just a short sort of potted bio, your background and why you wrote this book. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and I wrote The Hunger Habit because it just felt like it needed to be written. And it was actually with a little prompting of my editor, actually, at Penguin, who said, look, you've helped, you know, you've worked with so many patients at this point, you've developed these evidence-based programs there's so much out there about this myth of willpower that's actually harming people. Uh, you know, she, she convinced me that it would be helpful to, to put all of this down on paper and give people a pragmatic approach to working with hunger habits. Before we get started and really get into the meat and bones of the book, let's frame this first because I know this, we live in a day and age where we kind of have to. Let's talk calories in versus calories out as primary before we before we then get going. So tell me, because this is almost like the credential check, it feels like for, for especially in the podcast world, mm-hmm. in nutrition now. So where are you at with, with um, calories in, calories out, with thermodynamics? Yeah, it's a great question. They, you know, I learned that formula in medical school and it was kind of given to me like one of the laws of thermodynamics. You know, the professor stood up on the stage and said, you know, calories in, calories out, like as though that's all you needed to know. (laughs) And I was so naive as a medical student. I was like, wow, that's easy. I can remember that. And then I got into the clinic (laughs) and it was anything but easy. So you know, the formula is correct. It's also the basis for so many diet programs. You know, how you track your calories, they can come up with nuanced ways to do that and different ways to do that every week. And that formula is never going to change. The problem is that that's not how change actually happens in in real life. So we've established calories in, calories out. We know that from a weight loss perspective, we, we've got to adhere to those laws of thermodynamics. We have to balance that equation in the direction we want to be heading. Why do people struggle with this? Well, I think a lot of it is around what we're taught. So, you know, I, I learned the calories out, calories out in medical school. And, you know, if you go back to, you know, half a century of weight loss programs, it's about stepping on the scale. It's about counting your calories. It's about, you know, moderating your intake and all of that. From a neuroscience standpoint, willpower is more myth than muscle. 
So in the neuroscience field, we don't, in the equations of behavior change, there is no variable for willpower, you know, full stop. No, no, it's not part of the conversation. And so there's a huge mismatch in the public persona around like, oh, I just need to do this. And what actually how our brains work, I, you know, cynically, I think it's a good marketing tool for companies because they can say the formula is correct. Ask any doctor and no doctor is going to say, you know, it's, you know, (laughs) it's not about, you know, certainly it's very nuanced and genes play a role and there are all these things that play a role. But at the end of the day, you know, if you eat a bunch of calories that you don't need, your body is going to save those for later as, as generally as fat. So with that, you know, knowing that this is where we have to step back and ask, well, how does our brain actually work? And that's that's the place to start. Do you think uh, in your experience and with your experience, do you think that coming at weight loss um, societally and culturally, particularly on social media, where we're at now, this idea of. I'm not going to say oversimplifying it because it is it is that simple, calories in, calories out. But presenting it, you know, kind of conflating simple with easy, mm-hmm. do you think this can be problematic for some people when something's presented to them as like, look, here's this easy thing. All you got to do is make sure you're, you're balancing this equation. What's the problem? Do you think this can actually present problems for people? Well, I've seen this in real life, both in my clinic and also in the programs that we've developed. And the, one of the big problems is that people feel like there's something wrong with them. So here's this simple formula. Why can't I follow the formula? You know, it's funny. It harkens me back to when I first started meditating and I felt like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't pay attention to my breath. <laughs> you know, And so... I was trying to use this Western approach of willpower to meditate, to pay attention to my breath. You know, this this simple instruction, it seems so simple. And I think weight loss is, is very analogous where people think there's something wrong with them. So they get into these guilt and shame cycles, feeling like, you know, they're broken. The, the formula works, there's something wrong with them. So I just want to state really clearly, there's not something wrong with us. It's really more about us not knowing how our brains work and learning how to work with our brains instead of beating ourselves up and getting stuck in these sidetracked shame cycles. So let's let's drill down on that then. What's happening in our brains when we're genuinely hungry versus not? Where's this disconnect that stops us from just saying, well, I know I only need to eat 2,300 calories a day. I've eaten that many. Time to stop. What's going on uh, neurologically? So if we go back to how our brains are set up, and this is how, you know, this is evolutionarily conserved at a basic level all the way back to the sea slug, the most basic neural system that's been mapped out in about 20,000 neurons. Eric Handel actually got the Nobel Prize back in 2000 showing this. And what he found was that sea slugs learn in a similar manner to humans. And for humans, we need to learn. So think of our ancient ancestors that didn't have refrigerators or, you know, ways to uh, preserve food. They had to go find food every day and then remember where it was. So we have this very simple but effective system that helps us remember things. It's called positive and negative reinforcement. The general umbrella is reinforcement learning. 
So imagine our ancestors out on the savannah foraging for food. They find some food. Okay, so there's the first step of a three-step process. You see food. There's the trigger. The second step is you eat the food, right? And if it's, if it's good calories, you, um, the third step is that your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain and basically says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's actually set up as a memory mechanism. That's how we form memories. The corollary is negative reinforcement where we see danger, like the tiger coming at us. We run away. There's the behavior. And the reward is that we don't get eaten. We don't become their lunch. And so we can learn to remember where sources of food are. We can also learn to remember where sources of danger are so that we can go to the former and avoid the latter. In modern day, this mechanism is still set up despite us having refrigerators, uh, food delivery, 24-7 you know, availability of food. So our brains start co-opting this mechanism and our wires get crossed a little bit. And the way that works is let's say that we're sad or mad or bored or lonely or frustrated. You know, These feel unpleasant and that unpleasantness is, to our brain is like that tiger. It says, ooh, this is bad. Make it go away. And so if we happen to eat some food, chocolate, ice cream, cake, whatever, our brain says, ooh, this is good. And we get this temporary distraction where we get this dopamine hit. And then we learn, oh, well, when I'm sad or mad or bored or lonely, I should eat some food. That's why it's called comfort food and stress eating. And so this, this is actually so common now that scientists had to come up with a term that's a misnomer. Ready for this? It's called hedonic hunger. And it's a misnomer because we're not eating when we're hungry, but we're eating because of an emotion. That's where the hedonic piece comes in. That's in contrast to homeostatic hunger, which is those earlier mechanisms that I talked about. You know, when we're hungry, our stomach grumbles and says, go get some food. So in modern day, we're learning to eat not when we're hungry, but because of emotions, but because of circumstances, because of boredom, or just because food is around and we just, you know, it's a habit. What's the fix then? <laughs> yeah. Well, Asking I like for to, a friend. <laughs> yeah. So this is where, you know, we can explore what people have tried before. And I won't go into this too much because probably people have personal experience with this. We can try to tell ourselves not to do whatever the unhealthy habit is, but that doesn't, you know, it might work for a little bit, but then it tends not to work. So we need to find something that is reliable and is going to be effective. So this is where, you know, I, I take off my clinician hat as a psychiatrist and put on my researcher hat as a neuroscientist. When we look at the equations of behavior change, you know, as I mentioned earlier, nothing to do with willpower, but everything to do with something that's kind of interesting, which is awareness. And what I mean by that is our brains are going to determine how rewarding a behavior is, and they're going to set it up as a habit. I think of this as set and forget. And the reason that we do this is so that we can free our brains up to learn new things every day. Most habits are helpful. If we had to relearn everything that we do every day, we would be exhausted before breakfast, you know, just with that learning process constantly happening, you know, having to learn how to walk, how to make breakfast, all these things. So most habits are helpful and we set up a reward value so that we can 
when given a choice between two things, we'll choose the thing that's more rewarding. So, for example, we learn to eat, well, let's say cake, for example. It, it is a pretty good, dense uh, you know, vehicle for delivering calories as compared to broccoli. So our brains will set up this reward hierarchy that says, hey, when given a choice between broccoli and cake, we're going to eat the cake. Again, evolutionarily adaptive, but when we're not hungry, our brain's going to say, hey, you know, cake looks good. Let's eat the cake. So the way to change those behaviors is to pay attention. So for example, let's use an example of cake. Uh, let's say that a new bakery opens up in my neighborhood. Okay. Again, this is a learning mechanism. So I'm going to go to the bakery. I'm going to look at their cake and say, I wonder if their chocolate cake's any good. I've got a certain reward value in my mind for how good cake should be based on what I've had in the past. If I eat their cake and it's like the best chocolate cake I've ever had, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. How'd you guys do this? I get what's called a positive prediction error, meaning that it's better than expected. Dopamine fires in my brain and I learn, hey, this bakery, they know what's going on. I'll come back here and again. On the other hand, if I'm like, meh, you're, you know, I've had better, I get a negative prediction error. And then I learn, hey, this isn't quite, you know, such a good bakery. You know, don't bother coming back here. So that, that example is actually how we change any habit. Notice how I had to pay attention when eating the cake to get either a positive or a negative prediction error. If I didn't pay attention, the old habit would just continue on and be like, ah, oh, you know, if I go home, my wife asked me how good the cake is. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I was, I was on the phone. You know, I'd have to go back because I didn't learn anything. So we've done studies now. We have this app called Eat Right Now. You can actually embed a tool that has people pay attention as they eat. So whether it's eating food that's highly processed, for example, or overeating, you know, for all the members of the Clean Plate Club, we can have them pay attention as they eat. And we can measure that reward value and how quickly it changes just through that simple act of awareness. Are you ready for this? We, we published this study a couple of years ago. It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody overeating for that reward value to drop below zero and for people to start to shift their behavior. So, you know, which also makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because our brains have to be tremendously plastic and adaptive because our, we're in an ever-changing environment. We can't, you know, we can't be chased for 20 times by a tiger to learn that it's dangerous. We have to learn things quickly. So as long as we're paying attention, we're actually going to learn pretty quickly how rewarding or unrewarding a behavior is. So that's how we change. Does that make sense? 100%. So just, just to sort of um, bring that into the, the real world, what you were kind of saying there, if we don't notice the 15 times that we overeat and it makes us feel uncomfortable and it has all these adverse acute effects as well as, as chronic mm-hmm. If we literally just don't notice because we're doing these things habitually, we're doing these things with a, a lack of attention and awareness, then we can't reprogram. Like all of the times we feel incredibly uncomfortable because we've cleaned our plate and it was maybe a little bit too big a portion. If we are not bringing awareness to that and, you know, having the being cognizant of, hey, this is the thing that's made me feel like this right now is overeating. If we just carry on watching a TV or whatever it is, our brain can't establish it can't kind of rebalance that that prediction equation absolutely yeah so another term for reinforcement learning is reward-based learning 
And I like that term because it's descriptive. Because if something is rewarding, right, if a behavior is rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop. But as you're saying, it's all critically dependent on that ingredient of awareness. If you're enjoying this content, you can watch or listen ad-free on the Men's Health app by joining the Men's Health Squad today. Once you're in the squad, you will have access to tons of exclusive content, including regular member Q&As, interviews, and access to our world-class training platform featuring plans for every level and for any goal. Simply head over to hearstmagazines.co.uk forward slash mh-mag or hit the link below. So how do we then sort of reconcile or balance the idea that the foods we're eating, they, they are rewarding on, you know, on a, on a very sort of neurochemical level. Mm-hmm. They are rewarding. Eating, eating the chocolate does make me acutely feel a little bit better. Yeah. How do we balance that with now sort of seeking to have better long-term habits? It's a great question and a really important one. In fact, I wrote a chapter on this in The Hunger Habit where I have a friend named Dana Small who she's a food researcher at Yale. And for her PhD thesis, she fed people chocolate. So she'd you know, give them like really good chocolate, their favorite type. And then she put them in a brain scanner and she started feeding them and asked this question, you know, how's this taste now? How's it taste now? And at the beginning... They're like, wow, this is great. You know, I can't believe somebody's spoon feeding me my favorite chocolate and I'm getting paid for this. Right? As she went through the experiment, it was that she just kept feeding him and feeding him and feeding him. And what she found was that by the end of the experiment, I think the most number of squares of chocolate somebody was like 74 or something like that. They were saying, this is disgusting. This is terrible. And so it's the same thing. It's the same delicious chocolate where our body is telling us, hey, that's too much. So our body has all these wise mechanisms to tell us when something is delicious, when it's too much, because too much of a good thing is not still a good thing. It's actually, especially with food, our body saying, hey, you've got, you've done this too much. So I talk about this. I think of this as the, as the pleasure plateau where with each bite of a food, we can ask ourselves, is this as good as, better than, or worse than the last bite? And if we're eating dinner, for example, we can be eating whatever, whatever we're having. Those first bites are really delicious. By the end of dinner, if we're really paying attention, we start to notice the same food doesn't taste as good. And so we can hit that pleasure plateau where at first it's rewarding and then it starts to level off. If we pay attention, we coast to a stop. If we don't pay attention, we go over that cliff of overindulgence where we haven't noticed. And then our body tells us later, hey, you know, you overdid it. And our body, again, very wise body. It's going to say, you know, that doesn't feel very good. You know, and like I said earlier, the more we have people pay attention, the more quickly that happens. 10 to 15 times and that reward value drops below zero. I think... We have a we have a sort of cultural societal fascination with with food, and I'm I'm fully on board with it. You know, I, I can't get on board with this idea of food is just fuel because you know you name any country in the world and ask someone to say three things they know about the country, and you won't get far down the list before people start naming food. Right, it yeah. means so much to us. So the idea that it it really is just this sort of functional fuel, it's not doesn't sit quite right with me. 
But I think this could sound like a very clinical approach to eating. It could sound like I can, you know, I can almost, I can hear the eyes rolling of like, oh, you know, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to ruin my meal. But it really, it doesn't have to be this sort of clinical. I wonder if you could talk to us about that a little bit. Absolutely. And this is bringing to mind the the old movie, The Matrix. Do you remember when they were, they were on their their ship and they had their food, you know, it came down through this tube and they pulled this lever and it was like this slop. <laughs> gruel. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the gruel, you know, they, there was this, even a, a sub theme in the movie where the, the guy, whoever defects back to the, to the robots, hmm. he does it. And the first thing he does is eat this big juicy steak or something yeah. like that because he wants, he's like, he wants to live in the ignorance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's like, Oh, it was the food, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going to let all my friends die, but this steak, tastes pretty good. (laughs) So the point there is that this is so culturally ingrained and I think ingrained in our human nature, right? To, to enjoy food. The nice thing about awareness is that when you pay attention, you actually enjoy it more. So if we take a clinical approach where, oh, food is fuel and I'm just going to eat these number of calories and I don't care what it tastes like, we're actually divorcing ourselves from our direct experience. If we pay attention, food can taste pretty darn good. Mm. And we can also determine what food is really like is really uh, gels or mixes well with us versus other food that doesn't. And that's often a very individual process. You know, I can give an example. I used to be addicted to eating gummy worms. When I started paying attention... <laughs> It, it ruined it for me because I was like, oh, these are, ugh. <laughs> you know, they taste like yeah. petroleum. But it also opened up the uh, the space for me to explore, well, what, what does taste really good to me? And for me, that sweetness comes from blueberries. I absolutely love blueberries. But I don't eat pints and pints at a time because my body tells me, hey, you know, that's enough. They're a, they're a perfect mix between, you know, the sweetness but also the fiber that says, hey, you've had enough, where things like gummy worms, they're designed to be addictive. They're designed for consumption. Yeah, I can clearly remember uh, being on, on retreat, on a, on, a, on a silent meditation retreat, and I ate something that I would never really, it would never cross my mind to eat. It, it, I can't even remember exactly what it was, but it was a, it was a mixture of, uh, of vegetables. And because there's not much else to do other than pay attention to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It was genuinely surprising to me that this thing that I would probably have said no to or just eaten if I was really hungry, in the absence of other stimulus and paying full attention to to the mouth feel, the taste, like just the entire um, sort of sensorium of what was going on. This was the nicest thing I'd ever eaten in my entire life. Like, if I could line up all of my favorite foods that I would have in a heartbeat, none of them would compare to to what I was eating. And yeah, it yeah. was just attention. It was yeah. just sheer attention. And could you talk to us a little bit about mindful eating? Like, how do we make this work for us? Yeah. And, you know, this, this also highlights, it's not that everything is going to taste delicious. Uh, so it reminds me, I was on a silent meditation retreat and I would, they give us fresh squeezed orange juice, you know, it was like supposed to be the best orange juice in the, in the, in the world, fresh squeezed every day, whatever. 
and so I was like, like you was really paying attention as I was drinking it. And for me, I was like, Oh, this is sugar water, you know? And I actually became disenchanted with orange juice because I get a sugar rush and crash when I, when I have things like orange juice. And so I noticed it, my body was saying, dude, this is too sweet for you. You know, oranges, absolutely. I love oranges, but orange juice where there's no pulp and there's nothing, no fiber in them. My body's like, wow, this is too much too quickly. And so I've actually, I don't think I've ever, this was years and years ago. I don't think I've ever had orange juice since then, just because I became completely disenchanted with it. So let's speak more generally to mindful eating. What this highlights, it sounds like your experience and mine are similar in the sense that when we're really paying attention, we have this very wise body that's going to tell us everything that we need to know. And I'm guessing the, the vegetables that you were eating weren't some like processed, you know, frozen dinner vegetable, you know, it was probably something that was whole food based, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe even made with love. Maybe you could taste some of that love in there. <laughs> Who knows? I don't want to get too <laughs> woo woo on this. But the idea here is when we pay attention, our body's going to tell us everything that we need to know. And so we can read nutritional labels. We can, we can do, you know, tracking of different types of food. Or we can keep it simple and simply listen to our bodies. And when we eat something, we can see what our bodies say. And so, you know, our our very wise bodies are going to tell us everything that we need to know, not only with the types of food that we eat, but also the amount of food that we eat. Yeah, I think this 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 is almost a cliche, isn't it? The listen to your body um, is a is a nice line to roll out. But I I often say that we can listen to our body, but most of us, at least initially, don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. And it, it genuinely does take practice, right? This, you know, it's, it's the central, it's the central thesis of your book. Why do we eat when we're not hungry? If we could just listen to our body, mm-hmm. if we could differentiate our hunger cues from these emotional hunger cues, then it would be easy, right? But it yeah. does take practice. It, it does. And I think a lot of that is that we live so much of our lives in our heads, thinking that thinking is the way to go. You know, if we could think our way out of unhealthy habits, boy, you know, I wouldn't have to have a psychiatric practice because it'd be a single visit. You know, I want to stop eating junk food. Okay, stop. (laughs) You know, that's, there's actually a Bob Newhart skit from the 1970s that highlights this. You know, this is a perennial issue where it goes back to that willpower piece. And we're so you know, we just think that willpower is the only way to go. And here we can open up that question and say, well, is that the only way to go? And is that even the right way to go? From a neuroscience standpoint, you know, it's it's really about the body. I, I think of it this way is, you know, our, our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain. Because we often think, oh, if I just stop doing this, I can stop doing this. But we don't actually look to see how well that works. But if we feel into what we just did, our body's going to help us either become disenchanted, say with overeating, or more enchanted with, you know, for me, it's been more enchanted with healthy foods. I'm never, I have never not become more enchanted with junk food. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I actually think let's drill down on this this willpower element a little bit. I don't want to go too far into the uh, sort of the philosophy of mind and, and free will here, but I do think that particularly in the West, 
we pride ourselves. We build so much of our identity around our, you know, a, a strong, disciplined man with 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 a lot of willpower. Is it's almost seen as something to aspire to, but where where does willpower live in the brain? Well, at best, let's just say because neuroscientists don't really talk about willpower, so this is a little bit of a stretch. But there's a so cognitive control is something that neuroscientists talk about. And, you know, there are different elements that contribute to cognitive control. And the best that people have mapped is the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, this, um, you know, part of the youngest part of our brain, uh, the prefrontal cortex. And that seems to be where cognitive control is associated. You know, if you look at neuroimaging scans, that kind of lights up when you give people cognitive control tasks. So that, that's the best that we know. Uh, what people have also shown, like Amy Arnston at Yale and others, have found that when people get stressed, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. So at even if we can map it to different neural structures or neural networks, uh, this is the least reliable part of the brain when it comes to eating. You know, the, we even I learned in residency this term halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired that's when we're most susceptible to relapse to substance use or, you know, food use for people that are kind of stuck on, you know, stuck in eating habits. Yeah. So this, this idea that, that willpower is either something that you're kind of innately gifted with or something that you, you cultivate and it's this, this, this kind of intangible almost almost kind of mystical force that you you know it, it makes you a sort of straight arrow could be much more to do with this reward prediction or reward or danger prediction pulling you in one direction or another so it could be a case of it's not that you're less willpowered because you or you have less willpower or less discipline because you can't say no right now to the chocolate it's just that chemically and and the way your body is set up you're more you're actually more drawn to that and 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 less kind of opposed to the longer term um rewards of not doing that absolutely and so we often attribute that to willpower but if we if we break it down and look at what the process is so let's say that i'm given a choice between blueberries and gummy worms what my brain's going to do is take previous experience Right. I have memories of what it's like to eat gummy worms versus memories of eating blueberries. And I'm going to project that into the future. I'm going to do a simulation. Our brains are these prediction machines. They're always predicting, OK, what's it going to be like if I do this? And that's how we make decisions. So I can even do this right now, even though I haven't had gummy worms in a long time. I can still remember what that's like. There's enough of a memory in there and I can simulate eating those and then I can simulate eating blueberries. And so I can say, well, I have the willpower to eat blueberries over gummy worms. But really what's happening is my brain saying, you really want to eat gummy worms? Remember last time you ate those? That was pretty crappy. How about blueberries? Game on. So we can, we can attribute that to willpower. But really it comes down to this basic reward hierarchy that we've set up in our brains. And that's something that anyone can explore. Like the next time somebody's making a decision, check to see how you make that decision. You're like, oh, what would it be like if I eat this versus if I eat that? That's where all that, you know, the the willpower or, or what we attribute to willpower comes in. It's really that simulation that we're doing. So talk to me about the disenchantment data bank that you mm -hmm. talk about in the book. Yes. So this is really about developing 
a a data bank that gives us information that we can draw upon for these mental simulations. And so often, and this actually started way back when I was helping patients quit smoking. You know, they'd come in to my office. I'd, we'd already tried the willpower thing. It hadn't worked. That's why they were coming to my office. And so I would tell them to smoke. I'd tell them to go home and smoke. And they're like, my doctor just told me to smoke. What's going on? But of course, I would say, pay attention as you smoke. And then I'd have them come back a week later or whatever. And they would come back and say, wow, I didn't realize how crappy cigarettes taste. And what that does is help people shift from autopilot. When we're doing something habitually, by definition, we are doing it on autopilot. We're not paying attention. So what I had them do was do what they were doing automatically, smoke a cigarette, but bring in that one element of awareness and then just take some notes, like non-judgmentally, just be like, how, what's it like? And they come back and they're like, how did I not notice this? I had a guy that had been smoking 40 years and he was blown away. How did I not notice this? You know, he'd been, uh, I, yeah. So the idea there is we have people pay attention as they eat, for example. Again, it could be a type of food. It could be an amount of food, and then just take notes by paying attention. Their body's going to tell them everything they need to know. So if it's overeating, you know, it doesn't take long for somebody to develop that database that says, hey, this doesn't feel very good. As I mentioned in the study we did about 10 to 15 times. Once we have enough of a data bank, then we can draw upon that so that the next time we have an urge to eat that food, it's much easier to draw on that memory so that we can simulate what it would be like to eat it the type of food or the amount of food, and then make a decision from there, make a decision based on how rewarding it was last time. So it's critical to develop this disenchantment data bank. Otherwise, we're not going to shift an old behavior. This is very different than telling ourselves we shouldn't eat this or shouldn't eat that. I think a lot of people will have experience in this but in a, in a kind of much more dramatic context. I think most people listening will know what it's like to have... Um, I think alcohol is a really, a really good example, actually, to know what it's like to drink a particular drink to excess. But you could, you could say the same with food and have a, have a really bad experience in terms of like literally getting ill from it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, you can't not pay attention to that, right? You can't mm-hmm. not pay attention when you are made to feel ill. And you never, subsequently, you never go back to that thing because you... The, you don't have to have focused on creating this disenchantment sort of entry into the data bank. It's been forced upon you. So I guess, are you kind of suggesting that we just, we don't need to wait for the high stimulus version that we can't ignore. We can actually just pay attention to how things feel when we're eating them and, and just, you know, mentally log that. And this is not a particularly cognitive process you're talking about here, right? This eventually just becomes sort of embodied. I would say it's an anti-cognitive process. <laughs> and, you know, certainly people can say, well, isn't any process in the brain cognitive? So that aside, the, it's an anti-thinking process. So the more we think, the more we're actually interpreting our experience. So this is about thinking less and feeling more. So we pay attention to the food with each bite, if possible, right? Oh, is this enough? Is this too much? Uh, What's it like to eat gummy worms versus blueberries? We feel into our experience and we let that feeling body tell us everything that we need to know. Talk to me about bigger, better offers. So I think of these as helping our brains find what's better. So if our brain is going to set up a reward hierarchy with different foods or amounts of foods, 
we can, you know, it, this hierarchy is going to drive how we live. And so here we can say, okay, if we become disenchanted, for example, use my gummy worm example, when I become disenchanted with gummy worms, my brain still says, hey, I want something sweet after dinner, you know, just because, oh, it'd be nice. It's a, it's a something that I've done for a long time. And so I can simulate eating gummy worms and be like, I'm not really into gummy worms anymore. So my brain says, okay, give me something better. And this is where I can try out, you know, for me, it was eating blueberries uh, or also I like dark chocolate, you know, add a little bit of cayenne, some sea salt, mm, you know, it's like, but I won't slum it past 70, right? It's like below 70%, I'm not interested, but above 70%, especially, you know, you can get nuanced from there. There's something that's very different. And I think, especially when I've eaten milk chocolate, Milk chocolate has this drive for more. I think of milk mm. chocolate as kind of tasting like more. <laughs> yeah, It's not that tasty, but it makes me want to eat more. Whereas dark chocolate, I can really savor it. And it only takes a couple of squares and I'm satisfied, right? I'm, I'm content with that. So these bigger, better offers come when we, again, listen to our bodies we become disenchanted with the old habits and then we become enchanted with something that's actually more compatible with how we want to live. We're, we're feeling better. We're living a happier, healthier life, not down the road, but right now, right? When I don't overeat, that's a bigger, better offer than when I do overeat. When I eat blueberries or dark chocolate, that's a bigger, better offer than gummy worms. If you're enjoying this content, you can watch or listen ad-free on the Men's Health app by joining the Men's Health Squad today. Once you're in the squad, you will have access to tons of exclusive content, including regular member Q&As, interviews, and access to our world-class training platform featuring plans for every level and for any goal. Simply head over to hearstmagazines.co.uk forward slash mh-mag or hit the link below. I think this is probably one of the the biggest problem with relying solely on on willpower is that we're always then geared to the thing we're going to get at the end of this. So mm-hmm. in, in the context of diets, dieting, say we want to lose weight, whatever it may be, oh, it'll be so good when, when I've lost this weight. Yeah. And you, that almost sets you up to actively dislike what you're doing in the, in the here and now. It's kind of like I'm sacrificing X so I can get to Y. Whereas what you're actually saying is, probably the far more definitely more enjoyable way but you know like the way with the the better likelihood to work is to find a way to enjoy the way you're eating mm-hmm. right now yes and in fact there's another wrinkle that comes to this that it's probably helpful for people to know which is and you probably already know this it's called delay discounting so our brains are going to delay or they're going to discount rewards that are delayed. So if, you know, the simple experiment that people have done is with economics where they say, hey, if I give you, you know, 10 pounds today versus 11 pounds tomorrow or $10 today versus $11 tomorrow, what would you take? Or let's say in a week, let's make it even more clear. Most people are going to say, hey, you know, I want the 10 bucks because I don't know if you're going to show up next week and give me the other money, even though it's like a 10% return on your, on your quote unquote investment. And what that highlights is that our brains are, it's, it's really hard for us to look into the future because there's a lot more uncertainty the farther out we go. So we're set up for immediate rewards. 
in that way, I think of it as, you know, it's the journey as compared to the destination. We can say, I'm going to deprive myself today so that I can fit into these clothes, you know, in six months or something like that. That's a really tough proposition to, to offer or suggest to our brains and our bodies because our brain says, wow, six months, that food looks pretty good right now. So mm -hmm. we're, all, we're also fighting that evolutionary constraint of, I don't know if I'm going to be alive in six months, but I do know that that food looks pretty good right now. Yeah, and I also, this is slightly tangential, but I, I know I've seen some really interesting research on our, on our upbringing, our background, our sort of socioeconomic background we come from and our ability to correctly gauge that that discount right and i know people who we see this health disparity and we we see this um yeah the, the, you know this relationship between money mm -hmm. between our wealth and between our health and i my working theory is that so much of that must be related to this inability that you have if you come from a place of scarcity mm -hmm. to actually predict um, and, and reliably predict into the future and say, hey, I don't want to do this now because in six months time, it's going to be like this. I, I think that's a really interesting wrinkle that people should consider and, and maybe use this as a, as a way to say, maybe I shouldn't judge myself so harshly because the, the environment I've been raised in was one of scarcity. So, yeah. of course, I'm going to reach for the, the good, calorie-rich, ultra-processed food that's right here. And, of course, that then ties in with cost, too. And I think this all of this stuff amalgamates to make a very difficult environment for people to lose weight in. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm glad you bring this forward because probably one of the most famous studies around willpower is this, you know, Walter Michel marshmallow study that, you know, it's hard not to know about because it's been hyped up so much. People have gone back and looked at that in modern day and have found exactly what you're talking about. Depending on your upbringing and your basically your privilege you're going to act in a very different way. And so I, if I remember correctly, Michelle was at Stanford at the time. And so basically all the kids they brought in for these experiments <laughs> were like Stanford, you know, faculty kids. And so very stable households, you know, very, uh, you know, pretty good upbringing. And so they based all of these, this is, geez, 30, 40 years ago now, all of these results were based on that. When people go back and start looking and taking into account socioeconomic status, upbringing, scarcity, it's complete. The results are, are very different. And so I just say, I think it's important for us to be taking these experiments with a grain of salt, especially if we're not taking into account the context in which the participants have lived or grown up in. Yeah. And I know that can seem like a little bit of a, sort of a little bit of a, not a dim outlook, but it can seem, if you look at it on the surface, kind of a little bit like, oh, I'm screwed because of this, but actually having Ooh. awareness of it. Yeah, not at all. Sorry, keep going. But I would say I, I'm optimistic based on this, but mm. keep going. So I imagine we were going to dovetail here anyway, yeah. but someone who, you know, I would use myself as an example, not from an incredibly privileged background, 
but I know I know now that that affects my decision making. Mm. You know, and to to go back to the marshmallow test, it's essentially like you know you have one, you can have a marshmallow right now, or if you don't eat this one right now, you can have two mm. in the in the future. Right? It, it, it tests of the, of that sort. I would one hundred percent be the. I'm just going to eat the marshmallow now because I you know I don't trust that I'm going to get this second one. I'd be that guy. But knowing that about myself knowing that quirk of my own psychology allows me to then be like, oh, hey, you know, this is just the part, you know, me wanting to do this thing right now, me at the train station, looking at the McDonald's sign, even though I'm going to be home in 50 minutes where I can have the the same baba ganoush that I ate on retreat that was the <laughs> nicest thing I've ever eaten. There's, there's this part of me that's still going, yeah, but come on, the McDonald's is right there. You, you know, there's a, there's a very deep ingrained part of me that wants to grab the thing now. Mm-hmm. But just being aware of that enables me to go, yeah, this is that. Yeah. And I, I think that extrapolates into everything you're talking about, right? If you can just be aware of why do I want to eat this food here right now beyond just it's there, beyond just I'm hungry. Like what, how is this going to serve me in the short, medium and long term? And which one do I want to prioritize? And as you said, it's almost anti-cognitive because once you get into that habit, what feels right feels right, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And this even goes back, you know, I hadn't really thought about this this way before, but this goes back to willpower. And so if we don't know the context for this uh, you know, marshmallow experiment, we might think, oh, I'm just going to eat this marshmallow. I'm screwed, right? This is who I am. This is never mm. going to change. There's something wrong with me. So this goes back to the shame that comes with willpower. In contrast, it's, in, it's tremendously empowering to know how our brain works. So like you're saying, if we say, oh, I'd be the person that would eat the marshmallow now. If we just add in that layer that, that says, and this is why, suddenly we can start to learn not only how our brain works, but how to work with our brain. That is really, really empowering as compared to just saying, oh, I'm screwed. I would eat the marshmallow. There's you know, nothing I can do. There's something wrong with me. A, a term I think about all the time, and I imagine we're going to have sort of joint vocabulary here, is the, the Pali term, ahi pasiko, or come and see for yourself. This is something I think about whenever I learn about a new concept or whenever I'm trying to explain something to someone, like mm-hmm. just go and, you know, Go and find out for yourself. If you could condense everything we've just discussed into three or four very actionable practices mm-hmm. that people could go away and integrate into their lives right now. So we've got someone, maybe they want to lose weight or maybe they just, they suspect that the way they're living and eating now is is kind of spoiling their experience of life. But they, they feel as though they haven't got the willpower mm-hmm. to stick to a diet and What can they go away and do now to discover whether or not this is the juice that's worth squeezing? Yeah. Well, I I like, so what I would say here is that, you know, I can say, look, we did scientific studies. We got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. We, you know, see 10 to 15 times of, of somebody paying attention as they've ever eaten. They changed their behavior. But that is just saying, oh, that's a scientific experiment. I should do this. So we can often get caught in our heads thinking, oh, there's science behind this. I should be able to do this. Come and see for yourself means we have to do the experiment for ourselves in our own lives. The first 
place that I would have people start. So the first actionable step is to notice when somebody's trying, they're setting up food rules or they're trying to force themselves not to do something, right? That tends to put us into a shame spiral when we can't do it. And so this is the indication where we can just start to see, oh, willpower may not be the way to go. That's step one, right? So we can start to become curious about what might work beyond willpower. If we don't get curious about that, we're going to be stuck in our old ways. Second step is really paying attention as we eat. So the type of food, the amount of food that we eat. And that helps us start to bring forward what it actually feels like when we're eating a certain type of food or an amount of food. That sets up our disenchantment database if we're overeating or eating junk food. That's step two. We become disenchanted with the old ways of doing things. And then it's much easier to shift into the third step, which is finding these bigger, better offers. So the third step is simply asking ourselves, well, what's better? Often when somebody's eating out of emotion, I'll have them ask this question, what do I need as compared to what do I want? So that we meet our needs rather than feeding our wants. And here we can say, okay, well, if I'm, I'm not as excited to overeat, what's it like to just stop when I'm full? There's that bigger, better offer. But all of these require one common ingredient, which is awareness. We've got to be aware that willpower might not be doing it for us. We've got to be aware of what it's like when we're doing our old behaviors. So we become disenchanted with them. And we've got to be aware and curious to see, well, what might be more compatible with me living a happy, healthy life. Absolutely. Uh, love it. Judd, thank you so much for joining us today. I highly recommend to anyone, to, to anyone and everyone, indeed, The Hunger Habit. I had to speed read it because it was only released um, a couple of days ago and I need to go back over it. But uh, if you are someone who has struggled and it's, it literally has always felt like it's this willpower component. The, at the end of the day, what have you got to lose by looking to see if it, maybe there's another part to this equation that I've been missing. So I highly recommend the, um, the book to anyone and everyone because we all eat, right? Where can people find out more about you, Judd? I've got a website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com, that's got a bunch of free resources and also links to the books and the programs that I mentioned. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure.